Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Henry A. Thompson, PhD candidate in economics at George Mason University. We will discuss his article, Cosa Nostra Courts. So welcome to the show, Henry. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited. Me too, man. When, th- when I saw this paper come through my SSRN feed, I like hard click, smashed that like button right away. I was like, <laughs> I got to read this. I was so excited and it totally paid off. I love this paper. I thought it was super interesting, super insightful. And you had a really cool, like kind of qualitative data set you were, you were working with. Um, well, thank you. But, but just to launch it off, I wonder if you could say a little bit like sort of how did you get interested in writing about the mafia? I mean, you're an economist. Why aren't you right. kind of writing about the legitimate economy? What's this stuff about? about <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, I, I very much come in the tradition of my own professor uh, and advisor, Peter Leeson, who uh, likes to think about economics as a science of human choice. And he thinks it applies to a wide variety of different areas and subject matter. So wherever you see people making decisions, you're going to see, you know, economics is going to have something interesting to say about that. Right. And uh, I was reading about uh, early prohibition era gangs as one does as a graduate student. And I was trying to understand the institutions uh, and the organizing principles behind basically their constitutions. I was able to get a document and a copy of their constitutions. Um, and I worked on that paper for probably about six months. I, I poured my heart and soul into that paper. Uh, and the problem with that particular data set to kind of evidence my theory is I was relying on uh, early 20th century journalists. And unfortunately, when push came to shove at the very end of the project, I realized that uh, one of the journal, one of the uh, newspaper articles had misattributed a, a very, very important feature of that particular organization. Uh, and I had to basically put permanently put the paper on, on the back burner because it didn't work out. And, but that, that experience motivated me like, I'm going to go out and try and find, uh, I'm still really interested in crime and trying to understand the economic and organizing principles of crime, but I'm going to find the best data set I can find about this stuff. And I happened to come across uh, the Mary Farrell Foundation that has uh, basically been compiling a bunch of recently declassified FBI files, many of which pertain and talk about uh, Cosa Nostra, the American mafia. And that's kind of uh, where my where my job market paper came from. Okay, so maybe you could talk then a little bit more extensively about the data set, because from what I can glean from reading the paper, it sounded like a really interesting trove of documents. Like what time period did it cover who did it cover? Who compiled it? Like, where did this come from? So uh, it is a set of uh, recently classified FBI files that basically spans from 1959 to, I want to say, 1977, I think, at the very latest. Okay. And many of these documents are informed by highly confidential informants uh, who were either associates of mafia, of American mafia members, or they were made members themselves at the time. And so I don't have access to any of the names of the informants. They have their own little, like it's, it's very often like N Y T and then a bunch of numbers. And so that person says something about the organization. And uh, 
So that's kind of who it draws from. It draws largely, largely on confidential informants or secret informants. Uh, and then in terms of what's actually in these, uh, these kind of archives, if you will, tons and tons of stuff, lots of very kind of a lot of social scientists talk about uh, thick empirics. There's a lot of great context and detail in there. The, the uh, information there is highly fine grained and way more reliable than a lot of other stuff that's been uh, uh, done on the American mafia before. So there are recorded conversations between mobsters uh, and associates. There are really great and detailed discussions of their rules. And because uh, they have inform, they don't actually have a written constitution because they're not allowed to write anything down because they're, they're criminals, right? Uh, and so they have a kind of a very stringent set of customs that are described in detail, the activities, uh, the associates of these members, where they're getting their money, what sorts of property they own. Uh, there's just an enormous amount of stuff in there. Uh, there are probably, I want to say there are, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there are thousands of pages of documents uh, out there. So for those of you who are interested in organized crime, head out to Mary Farrell Foundation and help me start digging through this stuff because it's it's very, very cool. So given the nature of the information and how it was collected and the context in which it was collected, is there a reason to believe that the information that you were working with is especially reliable? like especially in relation to like other data sets, like the one you were previously describing. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think it's far, far more reliable um, because it's a lot easier to corroborate stuff, say uh, uh, from the, from the FBI files with government transcripts, government reports and autobiographies of members. So I spent a lot of my time while I'm writing about this sort of stuff, actually trying to corroborate things. So I, I don't, basically include a quotation that isn't in some way referenced or talked about that by some other, what I would, what I find an independent source. Um, a lot of the stuff that's been written about the American mafia comes from journalists uh, who basically are looking to get as many eyeball or many people as possible to write or pardon me, read and buy their book. So the incentives are kind of a little bit misaligned. So there's a lot of dramatization that goes on and it's very, very difficult to figure out what is actually true, what is hearsay uh, and what's being like put into the book to make it sell better. And so that's why I really am excited about this FBI, these FBI files because there's really none of that. Like these guys, there are incentives there, of course, as there are everywhere. Uh, but I would say relative to what's available and what's out there, this is far more re reliable. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the structure of a mafia family, what that means in practical terms, and what kinds of potential for institutional problems, I guess you might say, uh, might arise uh, as a function of the structure and the various businesses in which they're engaged. Sure. So the mafia, like a lot of um, kind of paramilitary organizations, if you will, like insurgencies or like other criminal organizations, adopts a, a pyramidal structure. So at the very top, you have the boss. Below the boss, you have uh, the underboss. 
And below the underboss, you have a certain number of captains. It's going to vary by the size of the family. There are some very, very large families that include hundreds of members. And then there are much, much smaller families on the West Coast and in Detroit uh, and elsewhere, uh, St. Louis even, uh, where they only have like two to three captains. So there are far fewer. And then below the captains, you have uh, the lowest ranking people within the mafia who are called soldiers colloquially. Uh, And there can be... They're kind of grouped underneath a captain in, in basically crews that range from size of like anywhere as small as, you know, four to 10 to 15. Okay. And, uh, I also want to highlight, no one really talks about these guys, but these guys are important, uh, inputs into the, into criminal profits. Uh, and they're kind of once they're not quite made members, not in the gang, but they're, uh, informal associates, uh, or they're proposed. The proposed are guys who have been proposed for membership, but who have not been formally initiated. And there are lots, usually lots of proposed and lots of associates. And these guys are largely responsible for doing a lot of the grunt work that goes on uh, for the mobsters. So that's kind of the overarching structure. And I would be remiss if I didn't include the consigliere, uh, who acts as a kind of advisor to lots of members within the organization, not just the boss. Uh, and can sometimes act as a lawyer. We'll talk a little bit about this, I think, a little bit later. Can sometimes act as a as a lawyer on behalf of uh, feuding or beefing mobsters. Uh, and what's really what, kind of cool about these structures is they're more democratic than you might anticipate. The boss is actually elected. Uh, now he then appoints his captains, and he appoints uh, and he appoints his underboss. But the consigliere as well is also uh, voted on. And so there are kind of these interesting democratic mechanisms that are going like, why should you expect guys who are devoted, who are devoting their lives to lawlessness to submit themselves to lawful or law-like institutions? It's, it's very odd, but it actually helps to improve the efficiency and cooperation within the organization. Okay. So one of the, now that I've kind of outlined the structure of uh, most American uh, Costa Nostra families, uh, let me now turn to some of the some of the or one of the most important and significant problems for the Cosa Nostra, which concerns secrecy. Right? Secrecy is uh, it kind of greases the wheel of criminal cooperation. When you see two guys who are meeting with one another uh, and they don't have <laughs> mafia tattooed on their forehead, then you they could just be two friends who are meeting and hanging out with one another. What you don't know that these guys are basically disguised themselves uh, and they're trying to plan some sort of criminal heist, if you will. And uh, so secrecy basically allows, it's an input. It's both an input into the production of criminal profits because it allows criminals to uh, make more money undetected and avoid imprisonment than they otherwise would on the one hand. And the other way to think about secrecy is actually like an asset. And this is part something I try and emphasize in the paper is secrecy is like, uh, it's like your reputation. Like economists think in terms of assets a lot. And what I think about the Cosa Nostra secrecy as uh, an asset that is actually vulnerable to expropriation and free riding by its own members. So if you think about uh, the tragedy, so it's, if many, if any of your listeners have heard of the tragedy of the commons, there are problems when a lot of people own a common resource there are uh, in, there are perverse incentives uh, for people who have access to that uh, open source resource to basically overexploit it. Okay, and what I try and what I 
think is certainly describes the case of, this, of the Cosa Nostra uh, is that members of Cosa Nostra have a perverse incentive to overexploit their own common pool resource, which is the secrecy. Uh, the way that they behave actually has impacts and can influence uh, the secrecy of the organization as a whole. And that is a serious problem for Cosa Nostra uh, because guys don't actually uh, appreciate what happens when they get to, they get sent to prison for 20 years, for example, and then they flip, they rat on everybody else and the whole organization comes down. Okay. So there's a huge potential for what I would, uh, what I would consider an externality, if you will, uh, where these guys don't bear the full costs of their behavior. Uh, and so Cosa Nostra obviously has to come through and design a certain set of institutions or find some sort of way of solving this problem of free riding by Cosa Nostra members. Yeah. When you point out that also there's sort of like an individual incentive to engage in violence as a form of dispute resolution, uh, which is potentially low cost for individuals, but high cost for the institution as well. Yeah. So, uh, not only is secrecy held in common by the members, uh, but secrecy is particularly vulnerable to uh, police investigations, right? So what you really want to do is avoid police investigations. And what's the best way to attract a police investigation as a mafioso is to either get seen, to get caught committing a crime or to get in a fight and potentially hurt or kill a fellow member or some random person, if you will. Okay. And the problem, uh, because secrecy is held in common, uh, members actually have a, a perverse incentive to resolve disputes between members quite violently, way more than they otherwise would. Uh, because when they get sent to prison, everybody else bears the consequences if they end up becoming an informant or a rat. Uh, and so Cosa Nostra actually has a super strong, as a kind of organization, it has a very strong incentive to produce some sort of institutional solution uh, that gives members a much stronger incentive to resolve disputes peacefully, far more peacefully than they otherwise would. So they got to figure out, okay, these guys are going to get in a fight with one another. Can I, they might kill one another. They'll attract a police investigation. How do we try and prevent that? And they come up with what I consider to be a, a uh, actually quite straightforward, but unconventional means of resolving disputes, which are what I call Costa Nostra courts, right? It's, it's a kind of, uh, it's a formal court system for criminals by criminals uh, designed to resolve disputes between criminals. Uh, and it's, it's formal for criminals, but informal relative to us, of course. Uh, it's way, way less fancy than the legitimate court system. Um, but it's surprisingly formal for criminals, okay? And what's very cool, so the, the kind of formal trial that, that Cosa Nostra members had uh, was called the Arguinamenda or carpet uh, in which uh, when you had a, a, a fight between two members, there was, there was a dispute that occurred between two members, they were obligated to report that dispute to uh, whoever was immediately above them in terms of the rank and order of the mafia. So soldiers would have to report that to the captain and the captain, 
if they had a beef with another captain, would have to report it to the boss. Okay. And so uh, whoever was immediately above the lower ranking soldier uh, would then have to try and arbitrate that dispute on uh, their person's behalf. But that didn't always work and very often didn't work. Okay. Uh, when you have two captains negotiating on behalf of their clients, if you will, uh, it doesn't always like co- these conversations often break down. And at that point, that kind of sets the stage for what I call the formal argument amenda, in which you actually have the boss and a kind of cohort of other high ranking members uh, within that particular family. Uh, they preside over basically a trial, okay, where you have the two beefing members uh, make a case. For the, for themselves, but more often than not, they actually had they actually had their immediate superiors act as lawyers who were actually making the verbal arguments. Okay, so uh, when you had a soldier get in a fight with another soldier, his captain would basically be his lawyer for him, and then try and argue uh, his case in front of the boss. And the boss would then make some sort of decision. Tradition and custom demanded that he try and find some sort of quote mutually acceptable arrangement between these beefing, these beefing uh, members. But he also had the authority to uh, basically command, command the members to uh, uh, resolve the dispute. And he had the authority to execute members if they didn't listen to him. So he backed it with violence at the same time, but he was traditionally bound by custom to try and find some way to kind of keep these disputes low grade. Uh, And so they were always getting in disputes. Actually uh, the boss much of the boss's time, at least for the American Cosa Nostra, uh, they spent a lot of their time actually just attending and resolving these disputes. So it, it was actually kind of quite demanding uh, for the bosses to to resolve these disputes. There's a there's a boss from Philadelphia, Angela Bruno, who's described by informants as basically just running around all over the place all the time, sit, sitting having sit downs trying to keep these guys from uh, getting at each other's throats. So in the paper, you point out that these kinds of disputes among soldiers, captains, other members of mafia families could be relatively common. What features of the mafia business model kind of led to disputes arising? And how did the court system they developed kind of interact with or intersect with those features in order to help um you know, help diffuse some of those kind of tensions. I mean, disputes was a serious issue for, for the Cosa Nostra for two, for two primary reasons. And in particular, violent disputes were, were a serious issue. Uh, first of all, these guys, these guys are criminals, right? And so they don't, and in fact, they're forbidden from writing any contracts down between one another. So any arrangement, any agreement that a mobster has with another mobster or another criminal is going to be highly underspecified relative to like a written contract. Okay. So you can't stipulate what happens when the cops bust in and like steal everything or they, or they take everything or they arrest a guy. Like who, how do they determine fault? They can't do that in advance you can, because they won't, can't write anything down. Uh, what do they do? St- so that kind of creates a, an environment or an atmosphere where all of the stipulations remain tacit. They remain undefined. You're not sure what exactly you're supposed to be doing, what your responsibilities are whenever you enter an arrangement or a partnership with another member. So the scope for disputes is quite high. And these guys are, and as a result, these guys 
frequently get into fights with, with one another. The other component, it becomes a serious issue in particular the Cosa Nostra, is that these guys are trained in violence. These guys are, tra- it's expected that these guys uh, actually get into serious fights with one another. And one of the mem- one of the rules or requirements for Costa Nostra members based that that uh, basically up until the 1950s or 19- mid 1950s, uh, members were expected to commit a murder either immediately after they were initiated or prior to the, their initiation. So these guys were trained uh, and expected to carry out violence. So conditional on any dispute happening, the fact that these guys are trained in violence gives them a slightly lower cost to resolve disputes in a violent manner, which again becomes a serious issue for Cosa Nostra secrecy because if disputes are happening all the time and each one is likely to escalate into a violent, uh, if not murderous dispute, then cops are going to be coming in, knocking on doors all the time. And that's quite frankly, bad for business. So they got to figure out a way, way to kind of keep these disputes low grade. And these, these, uh, these are going to mend these Costa Nostra courts, I argue is the primary means with which they accomplish that. So based on your research and the information you had available to you, how effective were these courts at mitigating the risk of violence and promoting the maintenance of the secrecy that's so valuable to the business enterprise. In a perfect world, we could go out and we could ask these guys, like, are these, are these institutions actually doing a pretty good job for you guys? Right. And uh, then we could basically pull them and figure out how, how effective they are. And fortunately, as it happens, uh, I have a decent number of quotes or at least anecdotes from people who were members who expressly say that these thing these institutions actually did a good job. Like these guys were always getting in in fights, and these disputes were remarkably adept. And in particular, so credit to the bosses who were basically able to rule correctly, if you will, uh, despite having no formal training, despite not having any background, despite not publishing their <laughs> their resolutions or like formal judges. Right? They actually did a pretty good job, and so. One of the best measures for the efficacy or effectiveness of these institutions is uh, how frequently they were used. And I have uh, anecdotes from previous members and uh, information from these FBI files that show or indicate that these institutions and these trials were used extremely frequently by the members and they weren't forced or compelled to by any means. Like these guys were actively sought out these institutions because, uh, you know, it, it was a, a reasonable way to avoid costly violent disputes between mobsters and f- that were costly for their organization in general. So what we've been talking about so far are kind of intra-family disputes and dispute resolution. You also talk about inter-family disputes and dispute resolutions. How did that work and how is it different from the kind of internal dispute resolution? That's, yeah. So what's very cool about Cosa Nostra is uh, they actually had their own Supreme Court, if you will, called the Commission. It too was comprised of nine people, at least traditionally, uh, and these, it was comprised of nine of the most powerful bosses 
five of whom were from New York, uh, many of whom uh, came from elsewhere, basically four of whom came from other families around the United States. And the commission's express purpose, its kind of original responsibility, was to resolve disputes between families that would occur very frequently within New York because there were New York is a, is unique in that there are actually five families in New York. Okay, in despite there being twenty five families historically speaking, uh, there's usually one family per city. In New York, there are five. Right, so it, they actually call it the volcano. One of the bosses, the Bonat. Uh, uh, Bill Bonanno calls, refers to New York as the volcano because things were always happening. Problems were always happening in New York. And so the commission was basically responsible for keeping disputes between families as low grade as possible. Uh, it was also, it also acted as a uh, court of appeals in some circumstances as well. When there is a dispute within a family uh, that some soldier or captain thought was incorrectly uh, ruled, or the boss wasn't doing his job. He was self. He was engaging in some sort of self-dealing, if you will, uh, or favoritism. Uh, they could actually appeal that to the commission, the, the Supreme Court. At which point, they would have their own sit down. They would have their own uh, trial, if you will. And the Supreme Court would was the final authority within the world of Cosa Nostra. Uh, and what they said went, and uh, nothing went beyond. Cosa Nostra, but it's very, it's very, that function was very important because bosses ostensibly had a monopoly on resolving disputes within families. And that might give them a perverse incentive to kind of self-deal, if you will, and uh, to rule in highly favor, basically give their favorite people within the family, uh, uh, rule in their favor disproportionately frequently. Uh, and so this, this commission uh, deterred that sort of behavior uh, because uh, it could be overruled, which is ultimately embarrassing to the boss. The boss is basically prides himself as someone who is worthy of respect, who's feared in very, very frequently, uh, someone who's the absolute authority within his family. And to be overruled by the commission is a slight against his reputation. Uh, and so the commission, too, like these Arguinamenda, these kind of small scale Arguinamenda that I uh, referred to uh, previously, were pretty good at, at keeping disputes between families relatively low grade. Right. So as I took it from the paper, the commission had the effect of kind of encouraging more disinterested dispute resolution on the part of bosses. Were there internal institutional incentives for bosses to decide disputes in a disinterested fashion as well. Yeah, so this this is something that I would like to devote an entire paper to, um, basically because I want to understand how criminal judges, judges who are criminals who are ruling on behalf of criminals, uh, basically don't aren't arbitrary in some way. And the mafia's solution to that, the Costa Nostra's solution to that, was actually to give bosses. This is very much unlike our traditional legal system. They actually gave the bosses at what I call an encompassing interest in the affairs of low-ranking members. So low-ranking members were expected to pay a percentage of any criminal profits they made. They would Soldiers would pay 10% or 25% to their captains. Captains would, would pay X percent to the boss. Okay, And that was a really important feature of Cosa Nostra for the following reason. It ensured that... Uh, 
whenever the organization the at the broadest level, whenever a Cosa Nostra family's profits declined, uh, the boss was disproportionately harmed monetarily by that decline in in uh, basically profit profitability of the organization. Okay, and so what what the Cosa Nostra actually does is it takes advantage of the rapacious and self-interested nature of these bosses uh, and basically ties it or channels it in such a way that he has a strong monetary incentive to keep these disputes low grade. Because if a dispute is left unresolved, okay, then it threatens to bubble up. It remains, uh, it might bubble up escalate into violence, which then attracts a law enforcement investigation, which then proceeds to hurts everybody hurts everybody's profits. Okay. But it doesn't just hurt everybody. It might hurt everybody's profits like 2%, 3%, you know, uh, but the boss scaled across everybody is disproportionately harmed by the decline in profits. And so as a result, he has a very strong incentive to keep these guys not at each other's throats. Uh, and, uh, so that's one of the kind of very cool features of Cosa Nostra. Ingenious, you might even say, is to basically give them a strong incentive to, to uh, uh, a strong non-traditional, non-conventional incentive to, to uh, rule correctly. So one thing I was wondering about when reading the paper was you pointed out that one of the reason that so many disputes arose in the first place was this sort of lack of a practical ability to formalize agreements in written form and the need to rely on oral understandings, which, you know, when things go south can make it hard to decide, you know, to come to, come to a mutually acceptable uh, understanding of what the, what the proper resolution is going to be. But I was wondering when those disputes did get decided, did they have any kind of forward looking effect? In other words, did the family as a whole know about disputes when they arose and how those disputes were decided? And, you know, those rare disputes that made it up to the commission where there's a question posed and then ultimately resolved. Was there any kind of like, like precedential effect of those kinds of decisions that would have kind of like, like, like future sort of like, like we don't need to litigate this because we know what the outcome is going to be, or was it more a one-off type situation? Great question. I've often thought about my, that myself. What I can tell is that they remained fairly local. Most of the rulings were, were extremely localized, uh, which again becomes an issue because if nobody knows basically who has a claim to this pizza shop, then there are going to be more disputes in the future. And so you might suppose that it might make sense to, uh, you know, spread the word that this is the guy who owns this particular thing. Uh, it might make a lot of sense to kind of prevent disputes in the long run. But again, the problem is, could that information then fall into the wrong hands and then attract a police investigation on top of that? So there were instances in which there would be like a commission would make a particularly important ruling. And that was kind of passed down throughout the ranks. Uh, but by and large, these were these were very local. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, Henry, I love this paper. It was really great to talk to you about it. I learned so much reading it. I learned even more from this conversation. I got to ask, what's next? Like, what are you working on uh, in your in your next paper? Because I, I, whatever it is, I'm sure I can't wait to read it. 
Uh, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the kind words. It's it's great to get a chance to talk about something I've been working on for a long time. I hope other f- people find it as interesting and, and compelling. Um, in terms of future projects kind of going forward, uh, I highlighted one of the things that I'm working trying to think about is how do uh, and I'm starting a project that looks at uh, Brazilian uh Apparently, criminal organizations in Brazil have their own informal quasi-court system. So I'm going to try and look at that. And what I really want to try and figure out is how uh, criminals and, and kind of societies on the fringes incentivize judges to rule appropriately. I think that's a huge issue. We thankfully have all kinds of issues like they don't they can't have a vested interest. Again, their disputes like they have uh, uh a body of law that can be appealed to that allows them to it, one reduces search costs, but also allows other people to debate about what the constitutionality of their ruling might be. Uh, criminal judges don't have that. And so I want to know how criminals try and avoid that, what sorts of customs or traditions or institutions that develop uh, to kind of combat that problem. Uh, the other thing that I'm really interested in trying to figure out is, or understand rather, not figure out, but rather understand, uh, is what's kind of the ceteris paribus impact uh, of not being able to write anything down. That's something I've been thinking a lot about within the context of Cosa Nostra, but I think it has applications elsewhere. And I think will engender, when all, when all of a sudden you can't write any contract down, that's going to have serious consequences for how you uh, cooperate and trade with, with other people. And so I want to know what institutions and customs arise uh, to kind of solve that problem as well. So lots of problems, lots of things that I'm trying to figure out, all related to kind of economic history and, and crime. Amazing. Well, Henry, once again, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, I look forward to reading more of your work in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I I had a, a lot of fun getting to talk about this stuff. So thank you very, very much. something about a a horse? Why, of course not. From now on, address me as judge. I don't want any more of that horseship out of you. What's the first case on the docket? The first case, Your Honor, is that of a young lady who was robbed in the motion picture theater. Young lady, will you tell the court just what happened? Well, Your Honor, last night I went to see a movie, and when the lights came on, I noticed a man sitting beside me. A man was sitting beside you? Yes, Your Honor. Continue with the case. Well, Your Honor, when the lights went out, he put his hand on my on my ankle. Oh, he went right to work, huh? Yes, and when the newsreel went on, he put his hand on my knee. He put his hand on your knee? Yes, but, but that's not all. Oh, hell no. He didn't stop there. <laughs> I didn't think he would. He'd be a damn fool to stop there, wouldn't he? <laughs> Continue with the case. Well, when the motion picture went on, he put his hand way up on my thigh. Young lady... When he put his hand on your ankle, why didn't you call the usher? When he put his hand on your knee, why didn't you call the manager? 
Then when he put his hand on your thigh, why didn't you scream for help? Well, Judge, how did I know he was after my money? <clears throat> case dismissed. What's the next case on the docket? Well, the next case, Your Honor, is that of a young couple who were arrested for disorderly conduct in a cemetery. Disorderly conduct in a cemetery? Yes, Your Honor. Will the defendants kindly step before the bench? <clears throat> young man, what were you doing in a cemetery? I was burying a stiff. You were burying a stiff? That's right, Your Honor. Hmm. Now, young lady, what were you doing in the cemetery? I was the undertaker. I see. You were the undertaker. Yes, Judgey. Your Honor, I demand that you give her the full extent of the law. <laughs> I'll give her all I've got. Well, that's not much. Damn it, your wife tells you everything, doesn't she? I object. Objection overruled. Now, I shall deal out some injustice. Young man, you were burying a stiff. That's right. And uh, you were the undertaker? Yes, Judgey. Hmm. Who arrested these people? Officer Murphy. In that case, I fine Officer Murphy $10. You fine Officer Murphy $10? That's what I said. I fine Officer Murphy $10. What for? For disturbing the peace. 